Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. To start the show off today, I'm going to present a mini CBD tutorial with a footnote on CBD edibles. The short video that you'll find in the show notes at localfoodandwine.wordpress.com takes you through a quick explainer as to how cannabidiol, or CBD, works organically and systemically with the human body's own endocannabidiol system. Succinctly put, we have receptors throughout our bodies that bind instantly with cannabidiol, or CBD, healing properties to bring about homeostasis. The benefits can be felt and seen in instances of body inflammation and brain inflammation and stress. Some disorders where it has notably had positive effects is on immune dysfunction, thyroid, chronic infection, psoriasis, and digestion. For brain inflammation, beneficial effects have been seen to alleviate migraine, anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and even epilepsy. It's also a known pain reliever as well as promotes detoxification. I highly encourage you to watch this short video explaining in layman's terms cannabidiol's beneficial effects on the human body. As you already know, if you listened to my last show, I have just released a cookbook, Le CBD Cafe Cookbook, that infuses quick and easy recipes with CBD oil. The CBD edibles market in the U.S. and even globally is exploding. So my cookbook, Le CBD Cafe Cookbook, is a way for you to jump on the beneficial and non-narcotic CBD chain and incorporate this holistic food supplement, as it has been designated by the U.S. FDA, into your and your family's and even your pet's daily healthy meals. You can find the video link in our show notes for episode 45 of Paris, Good Food and Wine. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Okay, so now we're going to turn to our feature interview for our March 2019 episode of Paris Good Food and Wine, which is with restaurant critic extraordinaire Andy Haler. Mr. Haler, a UK resident, has dined in every three-star Michelin restaurant in the world. Each year, he updates his tally to keep up with the newly crowned restaurants and chefs. 
He is one of the earliest restaurant critics to have migrated his restaurant reviews online, which was all the way back in the mid-1990s. Please note that I do apologize for the audio quality of this interview. There were two factors playing into this. One is that it was a recorded telephone interview, and two is because I was sitting outside at a cafe on Place de l'Alma in midday traffic, whose noises in the background I tried to diminish in post-audio production, but which still come through. But despite that, Mr. Haler's commentary is enticingly intriguing, especially when he dishes on our interview theme of the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a restaurant critic. You can find Mr. Haler's reviews at andyhaler.com, where he has 1,595 restaurant reviews posted. The restaurants are from all around the world. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. So Andy Haler, I am thrilled to meet you by telephone. You're in the UK. This is only the second like phone recording interview I've done, so hopefully it'll be, it'll be smooth. Sitting outside of the cafe, and <laughs> there you go. There you wanted to acknowledge, yeah. But you were just in Paris, and you, of all the food writers that I follow and admire, I think you're the one who has dined in the most uh, three-star Michelin restaurants, at least that I'm aware of. Is that is that a is that a an accurate qualification? Well, since, since I've been to all, all of them, um, I think that's probably quite likely. Yeah. Um, I, over the years, so I've been, I think, on seven different occasions now, uh, maybe eight. Um, I've been to every three star in the world at a given moment. So I did that first in 2004, and then, then 2008, and then I've really done it every two years ever since, so 2010, 2012, etc. And I did it most recently in September 2018. So at that point, there were, I think there were 125 or something, uh, three in the world and, and I've been to every one of them at that moment so it's obviously a, it's always a moving target with this mission of kind of um, doing different guides through the through the year but essentially that sure. was the that was the end of the sort of 2018 season of guides and at that point I've been to to every single one so we've got a few um, new ones that have just uh, just announced recently to, to go to but they're all kind of booked so uh, I should be uh, up in a few months' time. Well, that's, that's not just impressive, that's extraordinarily impressive. It shows a lot of dedication, too, you know, for the art of, of gastronomy. The, you know, I suggested to you today that we do this interview based on the theme of, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, a, of being a food writer. I know for most people, it's got to sound like the most glamorous thing in the world, and I'm sure 90% of the time it is. But as we both know, there are there are the ups and the downs of your profession. But before we start on that, Andy, can you just give us, you know, just a, a brief backgrounder? How did you get? How did you? How did you develop a passion for food? Sure. Um, well, I suppose I started to get interested in food really when I came down to to London for the first time from after university, and that was the first time. It was in 1983. And that's that I really had any any money. Just you know, where I grew up, we were, didn't really have very much, and we, we didn't usually eat in restaurants. Um, but when I came to London, I got a, you know got a good job working in computing, and I could afford to eat out. And so I started to draw the, the best restaurants that London had at that time. Um, 
which eighties eighties weren't a great time for food in London, but I you know nonetheless I, I did you know did my best. Um, and then I I guess my real kind of conversion was um, I'd read about a restaurant in Paris called Jaman, and in nineteen eighty six mm. I went there, and this was when Joel Robichon was cooking and was really at the heart. Yeah. And at that time, I think most people agreed that was the best restaurant in the world. And so I, I was very curious to, to do that. Um, so I went there and I was really sort of, you know, really impressed and blown away by that meal. And I realized it was vastly better than anything I'd eaten before in, in the UK, um, or anywhere else for that matter. And so that really got me interested to see whether there were, you know, other places like that. And so I started to, you know, to explore sort of, you know, high-end restaurants. Um, I wrote a few years later. I well, I started doing some work for a a UK guide as a kind of um, part time restaurant inspector when I was working. I was still working in technology full time, but I did these sort of you know evening assignments, and that got me um, I suppose used to the idea of writing professionally about, about food, and I did that actually in the end for about twenty years. Um, but then by 1996, I um, nice, nice, sorry, 1904, I think it was, 1905, I, I, I published a, a book on London restaurants, um, that was, um, published by, you know, publisher Macmillan now, um, and that was my first sort of, you know, first time I've written a, a proper book, um, which was, you know, got me interested a bit more, and I put up a website just around the same time, um, which really had the, the contents of the, of the book, you know, online because it was a one-off book and clearly, you know, restaurants change and places open and chefs move on and so on. So I knew the book was going to be become slightly dated after a time. The idea was to keep the content sort of current. And I guess at that time it was a pretty early time to do a website, sort of mid, mid-90s. mid um, And I yeah. that later on, I kind of, when it got to about 20 years old, I sort of started to hunt around do a bit of research and, and I'd run fairly confident that it's actually the oldest running restaurant website, uh, restaurant review mm-hmm. website. Um, I couldn't find any before 1999, um, apart from mine. Um, so I, I believe that this is the oldest one that's, that's around. Um, so I sort of feel like I was doing this. This is very much still a hobby, yeah, um, while, I'm, while I'm working. But I was starting, I, I moved jobs um, in 1990 to was working in technology, but for an international company, um, Shell. And I started to travel quite a lot. And I tried, started to, you know, try to eat in nice restaurants when I was traveling. You know, so I was going to go on a business trip to, to Asia, to, to Japan or to... Yeah, to Thailand, I would, you know, try to eat in nice restaurants when I was there. Um, and this sort of started to get me interested again in, in the sort of exploring the more international side of dining. And I realized in 2004 that I had been to most of the three-star Michelin restaurants at the time. And with a bit of uh, careful planning, I could get, get to the, the last of them. So uh, I did that. And so, so in 2004, that was really the first time I completed going around all of the three-star restaurants that existed at that moment, which at that time was much easier because they were all in Europe, and I think they were about 49 from memory. Um, so it was, although you know, it still had to be done, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even near as difficult as it is now, where there are currently, uh, as of this instant, there are 127 three-stars scattered from California to, um, you know, to Kyoto. 
and it seems to be a lot more, uh, a lot more tricky now to <laughs> keep up. But yeah, that, that's really the. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, you're you're almost spanning a couple of eras. I mean, uh, the convergence of technology and the world of food, and then it's funny, you know, you mentioned Robotron, you know, really rest in peace. We've lost so many great just in the last, you know, year. Um, um, so yeah, you're kind of. It seems like you're sort of uh, seeing a couple of different, at least two different eras. Okay, so that's fascinating, Andy. Um, let's okay now. Let's jump into your give, give us some insights into. So let's go down the list. Let's go the good, the bad, and then and then the ugly. Like tell us, tell us some of your face highlight memories of you know discovering a new record. Sure, but obviously, um, yeah, the kind of exploring high restaurants is obviously, yeah, you, you hopefully, in things go well, you, you know, you have a good time, um, you know, you're eating in some of the, you know, the best restaurants in the world, and, uh, you know, obviously that can be a very pleasurable experience. Um, I suppose the, so that's sort of obvious, I and mean, I suppose the thing that I particularly enjoy is when I can find a restaurant that's maybe not so well known. Um, that delivers a really, you know, a really special experience. And that gives me a lot of pleasure because if I can then write about that and sort of share that experience with other people, um, then hopefully, you know, other people can have a similarly good time. And yeah, if it's not a very well known restaurant, then maybe, um, by doing that, I can also in a small way help the restaurant to, you know, get on its feet and, and establish itself if it's a, if it's a new place. Um, so I think that sort of discovery of little sort of hidden gems, you know, at least hidden to me anyway, um, is something that I, I particularly like. And, and so, you know, often just as much as actually, you know, going to a very famous place in you know, New York or, or, or Paris or, 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 um, or Tokyo. Um, so I don't know, an example maybe would be that would be the restaurant that went to last year, which, um, that was, to me wasn't that well known, but it is, it is very well known in its own country. Uh, which is um, a place called 28 Hubin Road in Hangzhou in China. And um, because <laughs> Hangzhou isn't sort of really on the sort of, you know, tourist maps of a lot of Western people, though it certainly is a tourist resort in China, um, you know, the, the restaurant scene there is not very well known. But, but this is uh, this restaurant is regarded by many people in China as the best restaurant in, in, the, in the whole country. Um, and I had a remarkably good meal there, uh, with all kinds of amazing highlights. Um, uh, went with a, uh, a, a Chinese friend who was a, himself a, a food writer. Um, and we had an extraordinary time. And, and that kind of thing for me was very exciting to write about because I knew that, you know, very, very, very few people that read my website, um, or read, you know, the articles that I write in magazines, um, you know, will have heard of you know, of, of, of even the city of Hangzhou and the line of the restaurant. And yet this was, you know, one of the better known, one of the most exciting years I had last year. So those kind of, you know, hidden sort of hidden gems, you know, at least the discovery of them, for, for me at least, um, is something which, you know, I, I really particularly enjoy and it's, it's a real highlight of the sort of, uh, you know, the whole sort of food. Yeah, absolutely. Although, although you're right, Hangzhou is probably not on everybody's necessarily bucket list, right? Yeah, yeah, although it's a very beautiful place and it's actually got a huge population and it's a uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site around the, the West Lake. So it's actually a, a place that's probably, uh, you know, will become better known as, as, as people, more people start to, to go to China. But, but no, yes, nonetheless, 
And that's a good example, uh, you know, but, um, you know, I think you've used any other ones that, you know, European based. Uh, but places, you know, places that perhaps are starting out on their journey and, uh, are not so well known, you know, at the beginning. Um, there's a little restaurant I'm very fond of called, um, the, the Crown at Birchett's Green, uh, which is kind of near a, a place called Maidenhead, um, in London's about, uh, 25 miles west of London, essentially. Um, and this is a place with, which is um, kind of in, unusual because the chef uh, works entirely on his own in the in the kitchen, so he has no help whatsoever. There's no commissar chef, there's no sous chef, there's no, um, there's not even a kitchen porter. There, so he's nobody's even washing up. He, he does the lot, and he starts the week with an empty fridge, and goes off on Monday and, and goes out and gets deliveries and, and, and hunts around, and then cooks the food during the week. And that place, I kind of really, because I've partly died, I've eaten his food elsewhere. I was very interested when he opened. And so I wrote about that uh, restaurant very early. Um, and I think when it was still really struggling, um, and he had very, very few customers. And, and now, because I think of the review I wrote, I think then another food, you know, better, you know, well-known UK food writer wrote about it. And then I think that, you know, between that, it sort of started to get some reputation and then Michelin went. And then they gave it a, gave it a Michelin star, um, which is very well deserved. And, um, I think that's the kind of place that again I really enjoy because I feel, you know, in a small way I've kind of, you know, helped people get to know that place and also, you know, uh, you know, in a small way helped the, help the restaurateur and the chef to, you know, to actually, you know, get in, get some business and really sort of, uh, make a success of the restaurant despite sort of, you know, building up or helping to, to build up a reputation, which is obviously it's very, very well deserving on the food side, but obviously people need to know it, you know, to know it exists in order to go there. So, so yeah, that's just another example of kind of, you know, sort of hidden gems. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's like seeing good people uh, who, who, deserve, who are deserving of recognition get that, you know, that I'm sure it's very gratifying. Okay, so now let's switch to the bad. Of course, we all have our, our stories. I think for I'll break the idea. I think for me, sometimes, not very rarely, but very rarely, I'll meet someone who, uh, like a restaurant or a restaurant for me, who I really like. I mean, their heart is in the right place, but their game, they're not quite on their game yet. And there's such a hard to you know, what to do. So that, for me, that would be my bad. So here, your turn now. Your turn now, Andy. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how many things you've been about in the here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's always disappointing if you have a, you know, a bad meal, you know, in a, you know, particularly in an expensive restaurant. Um, it's, you know, it's particularly galling. And, and, and inevitably that does happen. Um, and I think, um, it may, it may simply be partly a thing of expectation where, you know, for example, if Michelin have scored something very highly, uh, and then you go there and it turns out not to be very good, um, then that was particularly irritating because you were going in with a certain expectation. Um, so I think the, yeah, the bad side of it, you know, is it would be always, you know, some kind of disappointing, you know, meal, whether it's just the food or, or maybe sometimes the service. Um, and, you know, it's one thing if you have a slightly disappointing pizza and you've spent 10 euros, you know, but it's, it's a lot more annoying if you spent sort of several hundred euros on a meal and it doesn't, so, so I think, yeah, that's always the, the bad is obviously that, that, that time. And, yeah, we could talk about, you know, maybe, maybe just mention about, I think, Michelin's uh, expansion outside of Europe, 
um, which, which really started in 2006, and it did uh, New York, and it, you know, it was expanded much more widely since with extensive coverage of Japan, but also more recently um, covering other bits of the US, but but also places like um, Shanghai and uh, Seoul and Hong Kong, um, etc., Guangzhou. The, you know, as they've done that, you know, I think the the standard of um, inspection has become much less consistent, um, in my opinion, and um, it's also kind of combined with the more recent trend of them taking money from tourist boards, uh, which is, is you know well established um, facts now that they don't they don't tend to publicise that, but certainly the tie the Bangkok tourist board paid quite a lot of money to Michelin for them to produce a guide there as did the tourist board in South Korea, and these, these, are, these are issues of fact they, they came up in the you know, parliamentary um, debate in those countries and the reported in the newspapers there. Um, and that's continued with other guides uh, more recently, the most recent one being the newly announced guide to California, which is again being subsidised by the Californian Tourist Board. Um, and I think that starts to create you know, a kind of conflict of interest Really, for Michelin, because if someone's paying you millions of dollars for a guide, then you know chances are you're not going to produce a guide that's completely blank. So yeah, there's nothing in that place that's worth worth star. You know, you you you're really going to feel pretty obliged to find places that are that are star worthy and, and maybe maybe some some that are three stars. You know, and you're going to have that pressure of whether or not you consciously believe you're being um, objective and applying the same standard. And I think it's very if you go to, say, Shanghai, uh, which I went to fairly recently, and I went to every single two-star restaurant there, and, and the solitary three-star, um, uh, at that time, there was the, the second one as well, then basically, you know, it's quite apparent that the, the two-star restaurants there are, they're no relationship to the standard two-star restaurant in, in Paris or, you know, or in Germany. Um, or, or in Japan, Japan for that matter. Um, and so I think there are a whole bunch of problems with you know, the Michelin system. And I think that, so because I kind of write about you know, these, these kinds of restaurants, I end up sort of quite often having to, you know, uh, ending up being disappointed because I'm eating in, you know, restaurants that have been given, say, two stars, but then they're quite patently not. Um, and that's, um, that's kind of frustrating. So I think that's one of the sort of the, 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 you know, the bad sides of, um, of the writing about my Yeah, you, you raise a good point, Andy, and I wonder if um, part of that has been facilitated with the ease of digital, digital media and now all the, all the social media. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. But, but anyway, let's move to the, to the last one, uh, the, the ugly. And again, I'll break the ice so you, so you don't feel like you're, you know, dangling out in the wind. Uh, I think for me, there's one, there's one instance that comes up with this after given the restaurant a glowing review, I mean, just absolutely, just, I mean, not because I had loved it. Then uh, a couple months later, a friend invited me back for lunch, and I ended up getting sick. 
like, I was sick for, like, two days, sick. Like, you know, like, could not hold anything down. So it was, it had definitely been some kind of food poisoning. And, but of course, you know, the review had already published, like, the month before. So <laughs> that was nothing I could do. But it's never happened since. It's only ever happened once. So, that, for me, that's, that, that was the ugly for me. What about for you, Andy? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I think we unfortunate. Um, I think, to restaurants, it's pretty rare actually to get genuine sort of food poisoning. I think when it does happen, it's uh, it's usually you know you can't necessarily be sure unless it happens where a whole bunch of people are ill on the same day after eating eating the same meal. So when those things do happen, um, then then it becomes you know more publicised and you at a famous restaurant. Um, but those things are fortunately very very unusual. Um, I think, I think, um, well, I think the, the ugly rather continue really on the theme of bad, of disappointing experiences. So, for example, um, went to a place last year in the Black Forest, um, which is a very beautiful part of the world with a couple of fantastic three-star restaurants, um, Schwarz Barber's Cuba, uh, very famous restaurant there, and Barrett, also three-star. And there's been a, a two, a place that just recently got two stars, so I thought, oh, that's, that's exciting, I'll go there. Um, a place called Schlossberg, uh, which is, you know, just, you know, a few miles away from these, these two very famous restaurants. And, um, it, we, we had, I went with a very experienced diner friend and we, you know, we spent a lot of money and had some nice wine and we had a really, really catastrophically bad experience there. And, and it was, you know, a mixture of uh, really just inept sort of food with, um, incredibly, um, poor sort of service. I mean, it wasn't hostile, but just very, very inept service. The waitress that didn't know, you know, really what she was doing. Um, and, and the food just got worse and worse as we went on. And we ended up with a very large, very, very large meal. Um, and, you know, it was just it was one of the worst meals I've ever eaten in a restaurant. I mean, never mind a Michelin star meal or in this case, two star meal. Uh, I should say. Oh. Subsequently, Michelin later tried to demoted it by uh, at least by one star, but I think they still wanted to go there. Michelin listening, but um, but nonetheless, I mean that's the kind of thing where again you, you go in the bank application, you're spending quite a lot of money. It wasn't cheap meal, uh, and you had eating really really quite terrible food, you know, throughout multiple courses, um, and and you just begin to wonder what what on earth is going on really beyond the head chef in that night, it wasn't like his day off or anything like that. So it's all very, all very positive. And those kind of things, particularly when you're traveling and you've gone to, you know, visit a place and, you know, uh, that, that I think would be quite, uh, quite irritating. But, but yeah, so I think, I think really. Yeah, well, troubling and irritating, sorry, yeah, I was going to say, troubling and irritating are, are kind of understated. But it's not, it definitely underscores the value of someone like you because, again, you know, if you're going to spend, you know, several hundred euros on a lunch or on a dinner for you and your, you know, significant other or, you know, your guests, you, you definitely want it to be a good experience. You know, even if you're spending less than that, you just always want a meal to be a, oh, I'm going to stop talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 sure. I, I'm, 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 Enjoying things, you know, good valued food, or enjoying things, you know, you know, in pizzerias and Indian restaurants and so on. So there's some really good value places you can find, not just about high end stuff, but but I think yes, I mean it, it just emphasises that you know there's no one complete trustworthy source of information. I mean these days, you know, you, you've got you know, Michelin, but you've also got you know other lists, you know the top fifty lists. You've got 
other newer things like La Liste, you know, which is a, a sort of driven by a French uh, government initiative. Uh, there's like a list of other lists, and then of course you've got social media things. You've got TripAdvisor, and you've got you know Yelp, and um, you know, and, and etc. etc. So, and you know, quite apart from other blogs and, and websites. So there's obviously a natural information now about restaurants to help you choose, but but it just show, goes to show that you know even you know professionally uh, produced uh, material like Michelin is is not necessarily foolproof um, and uh, for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and you know yeah, you just really got to be very careful in trying to research places as well as you can using you know whatever you know other other resources you can find. And um, in in the case of my website. Um, I mean, I do yeah. publications, but I, I put all my notes, you know, just like on my own website, handyhenna.com. And then, you know, obviously, like, the idea of that is really give people some, some sort of starting point, if you like, to, uh, when they go to a, to a new city. Um, and it gives, it, it, it's, it's, it's an opinion, it's, you know, there's no such thing as a definitive opinion, but, but at least it's, it's a consistent opinion <laughs> in that under one is. Yeah. Before we sign up, I just wanted the listeners to know where they can find you, so they can uh, read about some of these missing parts and other, you know, little, you know, myths that you have. What, give us your URL. And if you just go, you can just Google that or go www.andyhaler.com, um, then you'll find my, my sort of personal website, um, and that's where I've got now reviews of one, um, yeah, just over 1,800 different restaurants around the world. Uh, which I've been doing over, so really over the last 20 years or so. Um, and yeah, that's a, a good place to start. Um, if you Google me, you'll find writing that I do for other publications like Elite Traveler magazine and, and other things. Um, but if you start with andyhelen.com, that's um, a good place to begin. Yeah. Okay, good. Andy, I really want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, to speak to Paris Good Food and Wine today. Really nice of you. And uh, hopefully we'll meet one day, maybe next time you're in Paris. Bye. Bye. I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first ever homegrown English language radio show about food and wine. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine, available on iTunes.
This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. Now, before I let you go from the short time we spend together each month, I wanted to touch on the subject of food waste. In the U.S., we waste 63 million tons of food annually at a cost of $218 billion. All of this wasted food consumes 20% of freshwater, fertilizer, cropland, and landfill space in America. The problem is enormous but provides vast opportunities for ingenuity, creativity, and imagination in designing solutions, creating a flourishing food waste innovation scene. Food waste innovators create real benefits by reducing natural resource use, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, providing food to the hungry, and offering cost savings to consumers and businesses. That excerpt is from the Refed website. You can find the link on our show notes at Local Food and Wine. WordPress.com. Click on episode 45 of Paris Good Food and Wine. And for innovative IoT solutions to your food perishables, transport, and cold chain logistics issues, contact us at IOTShipping.xyz. That's IOTShipping.xyz. food waste in Paris, there are two relatively recent developments worth noting. A new bio-waste recycling initiative in Paris began in 2017 with 3,200 food waste bins being distributed. 120,000 residents in the capital's 2nd and 12th arrondissements were given the opportunity to more conveniently compost their biodegradables meaning they could put their carrot peels, eggshells, and tea bags in a brown recycling bin instead of the ordinary bin. Parisians are already accustomed to sorting their trash into three separate bins, one for glass, another for plastic wrappings, cartons, and paper packaging, and another, yet another, for everything else. So this adds a fourth bin for compostable biodegradables. Now, is this useful and is it necessary or even helpful? Well, according to a 2017 article in the local press, Parisians waste more food than anyone else in France. The article states, Parisians are guilty of wasting nearly a third more food than anywhere else in France, and it's costing them dear. Each Parisian wastes nearly 26 kilos of still-packaged and edible food every year. That figure represents nearly three times the waste seen elsewhere in France. So why are Parisians chucking away so much food? Is it because the capital's famously image-conscious residents are looking after their waistlines more than elsewhere in France? Not quite. Experts say it seems to be down to their love of eating out. Apparently, if people living in the French capital consumed more sensibly and threw away less of the food, they would save around 400 euros per household per year. 
City Hall in Paris doesn't need convincing. Facing 59,000 tons of annual waste in Paris and having launched a campaign against the phenomenon in 2015. You can read the whole article on Parisians' wasteful eating habits by going to our show notes at localfoodandwine.wordpress.com and clicking on episode 45 of Paris Good Food and Wine and find the link in there. Now, shifting our focus onto solutions, turning to the digital sphere, there's a mobile app called Too Good To Go. It's a food app used by Leal businesses. The Too Good To Go mobile app allows restaurants at Leal to sell their unsold articles at the end of the day. Designed in 2015, Too Good To Go saves restaurants and grocery stores from having to toss many unsold perishables into the garbage bin. The app puts restaurants in touch with consumers so that the unsold items can be sold for a discounted price. The app is synced by geolocation so you can find the participating storekeepers in your area and order your surprise basket, then pick it up directly at the store at the indicated collection time. Participants include restaurants, bakeries, delicatessens, and supermarkets. Again, read the full article in French or English by finding the link on our show notes at episode 45, Paris Good Food and Wine, on localfoodandwine.wordpress.com. Okay, that's all for now. The sun is back out today. Tomorrow is officially springtime in Paris, and it's time to take my dog for a walk along the Seine. A tout à l'heure et à très bientôt. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible, and especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.